This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode, but now on with the show. All right, everyone, welcome back to another weekly roundup edition of On the Margin. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, the talented Mr. Mark Yusko. Welcome right. to the show, Mark. Well, that, that, that. Thank you, Michael. And, uh, and I am back uh, to, to wearing some socks, so we'll do a quick reveal. Although, it's, mm. you know, today is kind of an optimistic day. I am I wearing the, the Bitcoin moon socks, um, you know, when moon. And, and that's not to say that we're going to the moon. It's not to say uh, I'm actually heading to Austin uh, to, to sit on a panel tomorrow morning for consensus. And, um, you know, I think the optimism of 20,000 people showing up to talk about this stuff is good. I just wish we actually would stop talking about just the price. And you know, I think you tweeted out or Yano tweeted out, wait, I'm not supposed to say his name. He who shall not be named. Um, uh, my tweet out that, you know, it's just about building, right? This mm-hmm. is the time to focus on building stuff. So, yeah. Anyway. Yeah, I would have to agree with you. I, you know, Mark, I, I think uh, we'll know that we made it on this show when you're, depending on what socks you put on, that actually moves the market. When that starts to happen, when we get a legitimate bump uh, from, from whatever right. you think the, the, that's your right. socks are. That's how we'll know we made it. Um, Well, I'm glad we started optimistic. Uh, We've got uh, a slightly worrying story that we're going to talk about. Uh, We're going to be talking about consumer credit and the personal savings rate. Um, So (laughs) give me Savings, oxymoron. Yes, exactly. Uh, Over the last couple of months, obviously on CPI, but there was another uh, very important number that came out this week, which is consumer credit. Um, so what we're looking at here is total consumer credit that's uh, denominated in billions of dollars. Uh, and it's broken out uh, between revolving and non-revolving credit. So you can think of non-revolving credit as that's one-time credit events. That's like, uh, you know, auto loans, that's, uh, you know, uh, student loans, things like that. Whereas revolving credit is something like a credit card. And that's an account that kind of just stays open, right? Uh, that's perpetually open. Um you know, this has steadily been creeping up, uh, you know, since basically the pandemic. You can see an enormous, uh, actually, deficit in uh, credit flows, which is basically when the consumer was repairing their balance sheet, they were actually paying down their their credit cards uh, in March and April of 2020, um, mm-hmm. when they were really worried about the economy and the world and everything like that. And since then, it's just been a, a straight straight line up in the other direction to last month, which was a record a record month for uh, for consumers basically spending on on credit. And the reason why this is um, worrying is if you put uh, these two charts against, so we've got total revolving credit uh, on the left here, which is basically at an all-time high, and then you've also got the personal savings rate, which is the amount of money that people keep in their bank accounts heading to an all-time low. And you can see that these are inverses of each other. Again, that spike uh, that we're seeing in this chart on the right um, lines up to this this dip here uh, on the first chart, which is basically when people were paying down credit cards, they were repairing their balance sheets. And now it seems like they're being, um, you know, they're kind of doing the opposite and they've essentially tapped out their bank accounts and are starting to spend on credit. So I guess, Mark, you know, when you when you see these two charts together, what are some of the first thoughts that come to mind for you? Well, the first thing is it was a natural reaction for an over-levered consumer to take some of the free money that was handed to them by the government and pay down debt. You know, the, the smart consumers did that. Now, there are plenty of people who didn't that, you know, sent the money off to Robinhood and, and E-Trade and tried to gamble in the stock market and felt really good when the meme stocks went up and now have lost everything. Uh, so that didn't really help. And now they're having to really dip into savings. Well, what little savings the average person has. Mm. And, 
and spend on, on credit cards. And this is a really bad. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be overly dramatic. I mean, I'm prone to hyperbole, but this this demands hyperbole. This is a crisis. And you know, as we were talking pre-show, I'm afraid. I like I really am afraid that this is not unintentional, that this is an intentional crisis. I, I tweet about this relatively often, you know, the dictator playbook. Uh, when countries get behind the eight ball, where they get overly indebted and they become crony capitalists, or even worse, cronyists or kleptocrats, and you get this, this group of people at the top who, you know, they're super rich and they own everything. And what they realize, the only way out of the mess is to devalue the currency and therefore impoverish the masses. Well, how do you impoverish the masses and stay in power? Well, you got to give them stuff. You got to like, you know, pay for votes. So you got to forgive student loans and you got to give free money during the pandemic. And that's what we are seeing. And it's not surprising that if someone hands you a check, you look around the house and you say, geez, I owe a lot of my credit cards and I'm a couple months behind on my mortgage. And, you know, there was a period where you didn't have to pay your mortgage, right? That they basically said, you can't be evicted. You can't be foreclosed on. So everyone just stopped, not everyone, a whole bunch of people stopped paying their mortgage, stopped paying rent. And then that went away recently. And now suddenly it's like, okay, I got to pay the mortgage and I got to pay. So... The only way to do it if you don't have cash to borrow. And we still, for some unknown reason, we still give uncredit worthy, that's a, that's a harsh term. I mean, they're perfectly nice people, but when uncredit worthy just means you don't have the capacity to pay back the loan. And, and Michael, this is the, the thing that, that's been going on for, for decades is... You know, when I was growing up, you know, my parents, they knew the banker, right? The banker lived in town and there was a relationship and and they lent you money based on what was called hedged finance, mm. right? Bankers lent money with the expectation, right, of getting paid back both principal and interest. Novel concept, right? And you were hedged by the asset that you lent against, a house or a car or whatever. Well, then, you know, the big banks kind of took over the small banks and the bankers were no longer in your town and you had the big nameless faceless. And, and then we moved into speculative finance. And this was kind of the, the 90s into the 2000s. And, and not only did they lend you expecting to be paid, I mean, no longer did they lend being expected to pay principal interest, but now as long as you could pay the interest, Right? As long as you can pay the interest, well, that, that principle, we won't worry about that. You know, you'll sell the asset at a profit someday, except for cars, which depreciate, um, or boats. And uh, so, so then we got into where we are now, which is Ponzi finance, where the lending's going on with no expectation of paying principal or interest, that there's just going to be a lot of defaults. And they kind of build it into their models and they jack up interest rates. I mean, revolving credit is not, do you, do you borrow at Fed funds? I always ask, do, I, I don't seem to borrow at Fed funds. And no. I think credit card interest rates are still 20-ish percent, maybe, maybe higher in some cases. So this whole idea that interest rates are low, well, not for 
this type of credit. And this is the highway, this is the super highway into you know, economic misery. And that's why the misery index, if you ask the average person how they're feeling right now, I just saw this this morning, um, ugly. 80%, yeah. I think, said that they feel we're in, going in the wrong direction. You know what's funny too, as as I was looking at this, uh, you know, I saw this commentary. Well, expect APRs to go up, you know, on your credit card debt, and it's like, well, have they been going down this entire time? As interest <laughs> no. rates have been on a one way track to basically zero, like, where has that adjustment been? But now that it's going back up, you know, to to still historically low levels, we should expect higher uh, credit card interest. Okay. Yeah, seems fair. Um, Crazy. You know what? That that's that's a really interesting point that you bring. Kind of like the death of the small to mid-sized regional bank. Um, oh my gosh. I, you know, crazy. I've been actually trying to put together an episode on this for a while and I haven't found the right person to talk about it with because if you look at the, uh, you know, the the layout of banking in the United States over the course of the last like 50 to 60 years, the story has been consolidation, you know, mm -hmm. as like there have been basically little bubbles of risk that have popped up in, in different, um, usually like credit-based sectors. Like there used to be savings and loans companies, yeah. right? And then there was the savings and loan crisis in like yeah. the 90s, right? And basically the government's solution there was to have buy, uh, banks absorb, you know, their credit and loans. And eventually like when, as there were smaller uh, pockets of disturbance in like regional banks, like bigger banks just consume them. And actually in 2008, that was like the ultimate thing, right? Where there was an enormous amount of consolidation in the banking sector yep. uh, because the, the whole the whole solution, right, to when bad loans are made and you need to absorb those assets just to move on to a bigger balance sheet. Um, and what that's meant is that the ultimate customer for those larger and larger banks have to be bigger and bigger. So as a small to mid-sized company, suddenly you don't have any banks really that think of you as their customer. You know, again, someone who might be prone to conspiracy theory might say that's the plan, right? <laughs> that you, you choke off credit to... The small and mid-sized enterprise, uh, you create this massive set of oligopolies and monopolies. You give those large companies tax breaks in exchange, in exchange for them buying back their stock, which is owned not by the average person, but by the rich people. Mm. Right? When did Warren Buffett buy Apple? Right before they announced this massive stock buyback program. Oh, and how did they finance that? Oh, well, they were given a cut in their corporate tax rate by the administration after they lobbied. So, you know, again, it, it, it is, I think, part of a very large plan. And it's, it's just not pretty for growth. Like, you know, I went on um, mornings with Maria this morning at, oh, dark 30. I hate the five o'clock wake up call. I mean, I hate that's, it. That's early. And, you know, six o'clock, bright eyed and bushy tailed on television. And, you know, they shown, they were showing the clip of, of Biden last night on Jimmy Kimmel saying that we have the fastest growth in the world. And, he, and, he, and I guess he did something like in the world, 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 like, like almost like a Wayne's world kind of reverb. And, it's like lying with incredulity is, is supposed to be a good feature of a leader. I mean, on no planet are we the fastest growing country in the world. And mm. nor should we expect to be the fastest growing country. It's just math. I mean, we are the largest economy. The largest economy will not grow the fastest. Now, you could say that our economic growth, right? 
may be the the incremental growth might be the largest. That's just the law of large numbers. You, you might be able to say that, although I'm not even sure that's true because China's is probably bigger than ours. But this this nonsense of rah rah us and you know China's evil and uh, I don't know, it just the whole thing smacks of I say desperation and you know this whole idea I tweet about this too is repeating a lie over and over as if it is the truth does not make it the truth. It is still a lie. Mm. And even if people believe it, it's still a lie. Mm. Like if yeah. I just told you over and over again that I was 6'4 and I sort of you know, sat up straight and you know, I looked tall sitting down and you know, everybody, you know, it's so funny, Zoom has made me just a total, uh, I, I can't judge anybody's height anymore. And I meet people in real life and they're either super tall or, or short. And I, I, I thought you were all the same height because we all look the same on Zoom. Yeah, it's, that's a funny, that's a recurring theme in BlockWorks. We keep hiring tall people and we don't know it until we actually see them in person. Uh, so it's like, yeah, some a huge amount of the company is over, over six feet. I'm, I'm with you there. Um, but I mean, walk, walk me through, because I think the reason why we're, we're zoning in on this particular issue, right? Um, and I think there are two ways to interpret uh, this kind of gorging that U.S. consumers are, do, are mm -hmm. spending on credit cards. One, you, you could look at it as, as a as a very unhealthy sign, right, of, of just uh, the consumer balance sheet, so to speak. And mm -hmm. we've got some contrary data that I'm going to get to uh, in, a, in a second that, that show why these numbers might not be so bad. But yeah. basically, one way you could look at these numbers and say, wow, this is really bad. We're approaching a recession um, and consumers have basically tapped out their personal savings and they're starting to live off their credit card, which is obviously yep. very bad. I, another way that you could look at what's at these numbers, though, um, and this may be the, the bearish case, is that the Fed overall, they're trying to take liquidity out of the market, right? Yep. Um, and what they want to see is actually contracting credit because they know that they need to cause a recession to kill this inflation so they don't get that death wage uh, you know, price spiral that everyone's so afraid of. Well, let me, so let the, me correct. They think that will work. They think it'll it work. It isn't going to work, but they actually they, believe. They, they this believe, is the yeah. thing. As you, describe, as you describe perfectly their thought process, they actually believe that by raising interest rates and choking off credit and, and I said, killing off a whole bunch of businesses that are over-levered and a whole bunch of consumers that are over-levered, they actually believe that somehow that's going to solve the, the low production of wheat globally this year and the inability of ships to get in and out of China ports to fill up with goods to bring back. Nothing that they do will impact those things in mm. any way. It will not change the price of natural gas from 950. It won't. You, yeah. can, you can raise rates to 20%. That will not change the fact that we have underspent on infrastructure in oil and gas, particularly in pipelines. It just won't fix that. I, I agree with you. Um, but I, I think the the meat of the question here is is like, is the because the, the Fed could look at this creation of they, they might look at this as the creation of credit. Right. And yeah. if if people are still create creating credit by spending, they say, oh, we haven't gone far enough. Right? right. So so there are basically two lenses that the Fed could look at this data. They could say, wow, we're really concerned about the consumer. They're about to tap out, which is a phrase you hear a lot. Consumers going to tap out. I don't really know what that means, uh, but people are saying that a lot. Uh, or yeah. you could look at this and say, actually, the consumer is still spending. We haven't been draconian enough um, with our interest rate hike because we need to keep hiking until the consumer stops essentially spending on credit. How do you think the Fed is going to look at this data and react to it? I think it's, again, a really important insight. And as, as always, you, you're, 
doing what we're supposed to do, right? We're, we're supposed to ask questions. We're not supposed to just report facts, particularly facts that have already passed and say, oh, see, we told you. It's, it's to ask the questions going forward. And that, that is exactly the question, which is how is the Fed going to react to a change in behavior? And this, this again, harkens back to, to the Volcker problem. You know, Volcker, he's hailed as this big hero and he broke the back of inflation. Well, but the first part of that story is he actually caused a bunch right. of the inflation because of some bad feedback mechanism in calculating CPI because it was double counting mortgages and, and housing prices. And so he, he was so sure that he should be doing this, even though he was causing his own problem. And I think the same thing is true here is, is if you're looking at the wrong data, mm-hmm. you may make decisions that are antithetical to your stated goal. I think the Fed, and we've talked about this, is in a box, right? Yeah. There is no way out. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they can't keep rates where they need to be to, to stimulate uh, demand so we can grow our way out of this because of the perception that they caused the inflation. They didn't cause the inflation. Right? You know who caused the inflation is Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Saudi Arabia could easily, easily crush oil prices 50% without even trying hard. Mm-hmm. Right? All they have to do is produce what they were producing three years ago, but they decided not to do that. Why did they decide not to do that? I, you know, that's a whole other conversation for another day, but, but they could. And China could clearly open up their ports and get the supply chain fixed, but they're not doing that. So yeah. the Fed has no control over those two things. Zero. Nothing they do is going to change those two problems. This episode is brought to you by Blockdaemon, the world's leading blockchain infrastructure platform. Blockdaemon's mission is simple. Make spinning up a node so easy a five-year-old could do it and so secure that any chief compliance officer in the world could sleep easy at night. In plain English, Blockdaemon allows anyone, whether you're a crypto-native fund, a financial institution, a DeFi protocol, whatever, to participate in crypto more safely. For some, that can mean participating in governance. It could mean gathering real-time and accurate data. It could mean generating yield through staking. Whatever it is, when it comes to crypto, infrastructure is edge, and there's simply no better edge offered than the one from Blockdaemon. Blockdaemon supports a range of services on over 50 protocols, and that's a growing list. They have multiple layers of risk mitigation that include regional and data center diversity, 24-7 human and automated monitoring, a full-service team of engineers to avoid technical difficulties, and things like slashing insurance. In other words, they literally make it foolproof. If your organization relies on real-time, accurate data that comes from blockchains, please, please, please click the link at the bottom of this episode and go check them out. Again, it's important. Got to click the link at the bottom. Otherwise, I won't get my credit. I'm, I'm, I'm curious to like just the devil's advocate argument to that is, you know, they, they don't have any control over, right, the, the cost of uh, oil. They don't have any control over the ability to produce wheat, et cetera. But what they can control is obviously the demand side of the equation. And, sure. you know, one of, the, one of the things that you and I have talked about a lot on the show is the wealth effect. So when they lower interest rates, they increase the price of financial assets like housing, right? You can see these ridiculous, 
an, an enormous yeah. amount of you know increase in the price of housing that leads to tappable uh, you know equity lines on those housing and people just feel wealthier so they want to spend more shouldn't in the reverse right when they raise interest rates the value of their homes go down the value of their financial assets go down everyone feels poorer so they're not spending on these things like can't they kill demand uh, do you don't think that will have an impact on inflation well, i mean so 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 let's think about this so gas prices have gone from two bucks to five bucks mm-hmm. over the past you know 18 months or so and how much has driving shrunk mm. not much right no well why is that well because in order to do your job you got to get in your car and drive you yeah. just don't have a choice now some people yeah. are working from home but 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 there's a certain number of people truck drivers you know gas station attendants nurses teachers that they don't have a choice mm-hmm. right so there's a there's a base level of demand that isn't going to change the other thing is oil and gas usage globally everybody focuses on transportation like the woman last time oh my god the the senator saying well i got my new ev and i drove here from michigan and i passed all these gas stations i just didn't care like well right but the average person doesn't have $70,000 to buy a Tesla. They don't. And 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 you can't get one right away, but but they just don't have that and they can't they can't buy that. But the real problem is is not that. It's that transportation is only a small part of oil usage. Right? There's all kinds of other things. Petrochemicals. Everybody's like, oh, I don't, I don't, I want us to be carbon free. I don't want us to use oil. Okay. You can get rid of all the plastic in your house. You can stop using rubber. You know, I mean, there's so many things that petroleum goes into. And then you got the other piece of it, which is natural gas. How are we going to kill that demand? Are we going to change the weather? Mm. Right? I mean, the, the real problem is the supply not the demand. We have yeah. supply constrictions, both artificial and man-made. I mean, I mean, both natural and man-made. Natural meaning we just don't, we didn't invest enough in the production of, of gas for Western Europe. So they're reliant on, on Russia. And then in the US, we had a whole bunch of, of bankruptcies in the oil patch. And we haven't seen enough reinvestment. And then we do stupid stuff like, you know, reverse leases, you know, the administration just reversed a bunch of leases for drilling on federal lands. So again, it's, I, I, I hear you on the demand side, but I just don't think we have a demand problem. I have said this for a long time. The inflation that everybody's worried about is not demand pull inflation. It's, yeah. it's not like the 70s. It is not that we're demanding too much. It's that the supply caused the problem and that can't be fixed with interest rates. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, but I, I, I do think, you know, on, on the one hand, the, I do think the Fed is genuinely concerned about this, right? Like you can almost sense, yeah. Uh, yeah. You, you can sense mm-hmm. central banks are worried about this and you're starting to see surprises like the Australian central bank, right? They surprised to the upside, right? They did a 50 basis point hike instead of people are talking about 25 to 40. Uh, Indian central bank is as well is, is turning more hawkish. So, you know, I, in general, I think central banks are starting to take this seriously. I think the question that everyone is asking is, 
you know, people talked about the Fed put for a while. Okay, maybe the Fed mm -hmm. put doesn't exist at the mm -hmm. level that it currently exists, but what are the things that are going to cause the Fed to say, hey, we might have gone too far too fast? It's and it's yep. basically when things start to break, right? So the the thing that everyone wants it to be is when equity prices fall to a certain level. It doesn't seem like yeah. it's going to be there. Yeah. It seems like more the focus is going to be on credit markets, right? So we haven't seen spreads mm -hmm. blow out really yet. Um, you know, that's actually because- I think it's the election, mm. right? I mean, yeah. I, again, I think everybody, particularly people watching things like this, really want it to be financial assets, mm -hmm. either you know, crypto prices or stock prices or you know, high yield prices. But it's really the election. Mm -hmm. I mean, the election is really important. And it's really important because people like to stay in power. And the only way you stay in power is if people aren't really pissed at you. And right now people are really pissed. Mm -hmm. And in the absence of a material fall in oil and gas prices and a material recovery in kind of consumer confidence, I mean, consumer confidence is plumbing lows that we see at recessions. Yeah. And everybody says, well, we're not in a recession. Well, first quarter GDP was negative. Second quarter GDP estimates have fallen all the way down to 0 0.8, which margin of error says that that could easily be positive, I mean, negative. And so, and not that two consecutive quarters equals a recession. That's not the way it works, uh, contrary to popular belief. It's actually the NBER determines when you have a recession based on four big indicators, industrial production, retail sales, employment, and I always forget the fourth one, but um, we'll see what they say. But I, it feels to me, other than the ebullience of certain segments, like I said, 20,000 people are going to Austin, Texas to party this week. Okay. That's mm -hmm. not recession like, but that's 20,000 people out of 360 million. Uh, you go to, um, yeah, I, 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 I think, I don't know if we talked about this last week or not, but no, we couldn't have because I just did it last weekend. Mm -hmm. um, I went to a lacrosse tournament last weekend mm -hmm. and with my son, my 11-year-old, and there were 50 teams, 50 teams from all over North Carolina that came and bought hotel rooms and spent a lot of gas money because they all drive giant SUVs. I had the littlest tiny car, you know, with my little Kia and everyone else is in these monster SUVs. And so that was that was impressive to me. I mean, that was a lot of consumption going on. Well, people went to restaurants. I went to we went to this one restaurant, hour and a half wait. Now, granted, it was a Saturday night. Granted, it's on the lake, like Norman, ritzy place with all the NASCAR money. But but still, um, that wasn't recessionary looking. But I do think it's it's the top end is still fine. But the bottom end, man, I mean, look at Walmart numbers, Kmart, no, I mean, not Kmart, Target numbers. Those are real. Those are real. Yeah. I would say too, I mean, like we just did permissionless as well. And I, I heard a lot mm -hmm. of people at that, I heard a lot of people saying, look, I mean, there's still so much positivity and, and et cetera. And mm -hmm. what I would say is I'm just remembering, <laughs> I'm remembering back to four years ago, uh, you know, the biggest consensus event, right, which at the time, there were no other events, it was just consensus, um, 
the biggest event they ever did was actually in May of 2018. And that was yeah. like five months right after, yep. you know, the, so at the yeah. very beginning of, we were already in the spare market, but it had already started. Um, and I, I just think sentiment takes a little while to catch up. Um, it, it feels like we're not at the, at the bottom yet, just because of there is, there is still like hope and we're, we're it, you know, we've, we've passed the anger stage into the, none of this stuff really works phase. Again, yeah, I'm talking genius, now specifically about crypto, genius analysis, right? It just lags a little bit. The yeah. lag effect. No, that's, that's exactly right. Particularly human beings because we don't, we don't like reality. No. You know, like, reality sucks, particularly when reality affects your, your personal in, uh, balance sheet. Mm-hmm. Um, or income statement. And, you know, we are in crypto winter. We are in a bear market, right? Mm-hmm. There's no debating that. Yet, to your point, 25,000 people down in Miami for the Bitcoin conference, however gazillion many of you guys have permissionless, 20,000 people going to Austin. There is this belief that, oh, we're past it. And and now we're gonna have this this big rally, and I'll tell you, I I'm so nervous. Looking at the chart, the Bitcoin chart in particular, it looks so much like that period right after you described June, July. It does look a lot like that. Kind into November. So there was a about a four or five month window where we bounced around six thousand. Over and over, and each bounce was lower. And we went twelve, and then we went ten, and then we went eight, and then we went sixty-five, and then and that descending triangle pattern is a horrific pattern. It is not bullish. It is, and you remember November fourteenth, bang, we were down fifty percent from six to three. I mean, not quite fifty, but I think we went to thirty-two hundred. And, and that was the, the bottom. That was the cathartic, oh my God, okay, I, I got it. And that's when, you know, I remember being, we issued our, our Morgan Creek uh, Bitcoin challenge, right? The million dollar charity bet that we would take, you know, uh, Bitcoin, anyone else could take the S&P for the next 10 years. We got crickets. We actually had one person did say he would take it as a famous money manager and, uh, his son talked him out of it. He's like, Dad, no, no, we are not doing that. There's only downside for us. I mean, we're in the traditional asset management business. So uh, he didn't take it. But uh, it's a good thing, too, because, right, you know, Bitcoin's up 10x from there. I love that. I love when you guys did that. Yeah. Should I? I mean, even now, I would, I would take that bet, uh, Bitcoin. Oh, my God. Right now, I'll issue, let's yeah. issue it again. The Morgan Creek, you know, Bitcoin challenge. Anyone, anyone listening to this, not, I mean, Jim, I, I wouldn't do it against Jim because I like Jim. Um, but anyone in the traditional world who wants to take the S&P over the next 10 years, you know what? Dang it. I should have done that on Maria's show this morning. I should have done that. Hey, we have a bigger, we have a bigger viewership than her anyway. So don't You know what? It. It's probably true. It's probably true. Um, um, it, it probably is true, especially at six in the morning. I know. We have bigger viewership than Maria at six in the morning. A hundred percent. Higher quality viewers, all you listeners. Um, all right. I've got, I've got I mean, one that's more. Not even, that's not even close. Definitely yeah. higher quality. hundred percent. Because these people actually care about stuff beyond politics. I've got one more question for you about, uh, or just line of uh, questioning around consumer credit uh, before we move on. And, I, and I, did wa- I did want to present as well, just kind of the devil's advocate here, uh, because 
the the flip side, right, of everything that we're talking about, there there is some data to suggest actually that I mean this is not you know as bad as many like yeah. so the, the 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 two data points that I think are worth pointing out is what you basically have on the left here is credit card spending versus debit card spending. And, and you can see that, I mean, the idea just being what are people spending in terms of credit versus what are they spending in terms of cash they actually have. Uh, and that hasn't changed overly much in the last, uh, let's say, two years that we're showing, uh, mm -hmm. you know, uh, May of uh, 2019, May of 2021 and May of 2022. It's about the same. Um, and then the other thing, too, is that we're looking at the household debt service ratio, which is something that people pay a lot of attention to. Uh, and that's actually at at you know, pretty lows. So, right. That's yeah. a, that's the, as, as a percentage of people's disposable income, how much do they have to pay in terms of their mortgage each month? And that's going down. So I think that's why people are not, that's the, that's the flip side to everything that you and I just said. Um, I would say one, one other area to just be aware of, uh, you know, for, for uh, consumer credit, um, is the buy now pay later phase. Oh, um, yes. you know, um, so, you know, this is a pretty interesting area, but maybe you guys have seen this when you're when you're checking out now uh, from something like, uh, you know, any of these like e-commerce kind of sites, you have this increasingly you have this option to don't buy now, uh, but you can buy now, but you can pay later. Yeah. Right. And there are these companies that have sprung up like a firm. Klarna, et cetera, that have gotten, you know, like screamingly high valuations. Um, and basically the idea is that, you know, in the same way that you can take on debt to buy a house, um, well, you can finance purchases of increasingly small consumer items, right? And I think this really kind of got started too. I mean, it was got started way before this, but that you can kind of see that making sense with like a Peloton, right? But now, I mean, you can literally do this on like $100 purchases, right? Mm -hmm. so it's very, very low. And you know, this is still a relatively small, uh, you know, part of the market. But I mean, I there, there's an estimate that for 2022, you know, there's going to be, uh, you know, over $180 billion worth of items that are bought, you know, financed essentially in this way of buy now, pay later. Um, and w one of the tricks about this is that, you know, the business is uh, the business model for these companies like the affirms of the world, the Klarna's of the world, is that they're securitizing this debt, essentially, right? They're packaging it in the same way that they did uh, for the you know in the great financial crisis mm -hmm. where they had a bunch of different tranches of mortgages remember that they paid these CDOs they mm -hmm. essentially securitize the debt of these consumers which you know no one is doing credit checks or anything on these and they sell these um, and and crucially uh, that data is not included in this in this uh, this consumer credit data that we've been reviewing so you know it's it's hard to know this uh, you know I was really digging into this but yeah. You know, it's hard to know if this is like subprime data. It's getting tossed around that comparison, mm -hmm. but it's certainly not. You wouldn't call it solid. You know, you wouldn't call these people solid borrowers, right? Uh, and it, there's, it's something like forty-two percent. Uh, you know, in, in a firm's case, have like missed a, at least one payment, right? So it's not very solid data. I'm, I'm curious, Mark, if you dug into the buy now, pay later stuff. I mean, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, we. Um we avoided the, the the mania around this. You know, these stock prices went straight up, and all the hedge funds jumped in, and and uh, and, and now they've gone the other way, and then they're down 75, 80, 80 plus percent. You know, it's like most things in life. This is not new, right? I mean, mm -hmm. what is a credit card? A credit card is buy now, pay later, and. <laughs> yep. You know, this is just taking it from uh, an unknown schedule that you determine, right? You can determine how much you want to pay on your credit card to, okay, now you're going to have these these four payments set up on a periodic basis. 
So I don't really get the allure. Um, I guess it's a little better UI UX and it seems like it's something new, but um, I I don't get it. I mean, to avoid paying credit card interest, you, you're paying interest to these companies. You, you realize that, right? I mean, I, I I just don't understand. I mean... So guys, for those of you who are just following on via audio, sorry, Mark, I'm just gonna, this is a chart for, this is a, a poll that was done insider intelligence about reasons why US consumers use be, be a buy now pay later services. The top four reasons. Number one is to avoid paying credit card interest. That's about 40% of people. Uh, two, to make purchases that otherwise wouldn't fit in my budget, which is 38.4%. Not great. Uh, you know, three, to borrow money without a credit check, which is about 25%, which is also not great. And four is just, I don't like to use credit cards. So I'm, I'm kind of with you on that, but but I mean, you, you can see, so maybe to, to extrapolate here, uh, because the, the, the reason why everyone loves these business models of buy now, pay later is because essentially when you include that as an option, you know, the cart size goes up, right, on an e-commerce mm-hmm. site by like 40, 50%. Yeah. That's why that's why it's so, so alluring. And actually, the, the other thing that we should talk about as well, this just got announced with Apple's big thing, is that Apple is getting into the buy now pay later space. I don't no, know if for that. sure. And, and, yeah. and I guess now that I, you know, when I think about it, it, I, I, I misspoke. It, it's, you're not paying interest per se. Um, but, but you are in the sense of the companies will, because someone's paying the interest on the money, right? So someone's borrowing the money to front, to give to the, to the company. And, and then to your point, they they package up the loans and they they tranche them out. And, and so there, there's a financial engineering that's going on. And I guess the thesis is that the cost of money to those big borrowers is lower than you know using a credit card, which is true. Um, but prices will adjust to capture to recapture that amount that you're losing because you're paying you know, the, the cost of acquisition to the, to the tech company. And so it, over the long term, you, I don't believe you save money. It's like, you know, the layaway process in the old days, you know, when I was growing up, you, you put it behind the counter and then you paid for it over a period of time and then you got it at the end. Now you get to take it with you and use it while you pay. But, um, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm very suspect of anything that that uh, finances, to your point, low quality borrowers. Right. And you know that's that's a mean thing to say, but it's just fact, right? I mean, if 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 thirty eight percent are saying it's to buy things that I really can't afford, just think about that sentence. I agree. It's like like somebody tweeted at me today. You know, I said that, that tech valuations were still too high. He said, what are you talking about? You know, Amazon's only selling at 55 times. That's low compared to the last 10 years. I'm like, are, are you joking? Can you read what you just said? Okay. This is a really good point and actually something that I keep hearing. And, uh, you know, people keep talking about re... It's like, okay, I've been listening to, there's a guy, uh, Brad Gerstner, who's a really yeah. smart guy. He's a founder of Altimeter Capital, really sharp hedge fund. As far as I know some of the folks there, and as far as I can tell, they're real sharks, really smart guys. I listen to him talk about this idea of 
We aren't there yet, but eventually, you know, by maybe fall of this year, investors will feel comfortable underwriting to the five-year average. But like, I'm just sitting there thinking, in my mind, the absolute worst case, you know, that we're talking about here is underwriting to as if we just continue to grow on the same trajectory that we've been growing for the last 13 years. It's like no one can even, no one can even mentally prepare for, for the idea that it could go lower than that, right? That's not how, because that's not how it works. It corrects to the upside, then the downside, then we go back to yeah, the average. But but the worst part is, is again, people just can't, and it's not their fault, right? People only use short periods of time, like the last 10 years. Oh, that seems like a long time. First right. of all, that's not a long time. Second of all, that data is polluted by QE, mm-hmm. right? Because we held interest rates down, that boosted people's perception of the future value, even though low interest rates are a sign of economic weakness in the future, so you should actually discount, not, not expand. But the, 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 the joke of it is that to say that for 10 years, we were idiots to pay 100 times earnings for companies, okay, mm. which has never been a good idea, or 20 times revenues, or even you know 100 times revenues in some cases, and, and that 55 is lower than that. It's like, no, 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 no. What's the growth rate of that company? Mm. What is the growth rate? Is it 5%? Is it 8%? Is it 10%? It sure ain't 50%. Amazon is not growing 50%. It's just not. Apple is not growing 25%. And yet the PE is still 25. And you can engineer like you know amazon oh we split our stock so yay we're more valuable are you, are you joking mm. a stock split doesn't create value doesn't destroy value but doesn't create value it just gives you this illusion that oh well the stock price has to go up because number only go up well right but number go up could also include and will also include and i'll argue we are there a 10-year or longer period 20 years if you're a Microsoft or Cisco, where you don't get back to the old high. I, I thought the, uh, just on your idea about stock splits, I don't know if you saw Shopify announced a 10 to 1 stock split. Of course and, they did. And I was just like, that's the solution? <laughs> Stock's down like 90%. And it's just like, oh, we'll do a stock split. The I mean, I, I don't think that's going to keep working, you know, uh, not like, you know, when Tesla announced its stock split and it went up like 10% that day. I just don't think we're in that environment anymore. But um, look, uh, you know, at some point, you know, madness wears off. The problem is people go mad in crowds and they only come to their senses one by one. You know, it's not like we all wake up and say, oh, geez, paying 55 times for something growing 20% is a bad trade. Uh, we just don't get there. And, mm-hmm. you know, there, you know, Tesla, another one, right? You know, I think it was up this morning for some reason, like their, you know, their, their production in China went up. But, the valuation of Tesla still sucks and yep. it's down a lot from where it was and Pizzo, but it's still up over the last, and I'm like, yeah, I got you. But trust me, when, when we're done with this cycle, and we're not done, when we're done with this cycle, this economic cycle, and we have the recession and we have the, the cleansing and we have the credit spread blow up like you talked about, when all that happens, we will look back and f- with, with incredulity, we're like, oh, we knew that was going to happen. Mm. <laughs> like, well, 
but you didn't prepare for it and you just held all the stuff that went down. So whatever. Yeah. I've noticed, I've noticed that, uh, the further away you get from these sorts of crises, the more everyone just says I was on the right side of that, even though no one at the time ever does. Revisionist history is unbelievable. If you just took people at their word the way they talk about it, everyone was on the right side of the great financial crisis now. And 100%. like, and this is my this is a, a bother with me about Terra too. It's like, look, I understand the the pressure to not say negative things in crypto. I think it's a kind of a problem in in mm-hmm. in crypto in general. But like, the way it gets portrayed is like everyone knew that this was a Ponzi that was that was gonna collapse. And it's like that's not the case. Like I've been around here. I've been paying attention i mean i know there were i know there were concerns and some people did voice those concerns gigantic rebirth galoy like but um but i just want i just want to put the i just want to tie the bow on this whole consumer credit thing that we're talking about then Mm -hmm. we've got one more hedge fund story that i want to move on to uh, to get your take on but in general you know what what i'd love to know is you know because you, you could look at this consumer credit i just want to know how you think about consumer credit here is this because on the one hand, you could look at this and say, hey, we're heading into a recession, which means that people default on cre- things like credit cards, and that could cause some sort of cascade, yeah. right? That could be a, a any, any all the, the, the whole credit uh, system is interconnected, right? So you, what you definitely don't want is a whole bunch of defaults, banks taking losses, et cetera, especially in, in a time that's pretty bad for banks in general. Um, the other way that you could look at it uh, is say, you know, is to say, again, the Fed will look at this and say, credit is still being created. Look, people are still spending. We're not doing enough. Um, so... What what is the way? Like, should we be worried about some sort of you know contagion uh, in, in with a bubble in consumer credit? Uh, should we say, hey, the this the Fed will still look at this and say, hey, we're not going far enough. Like, what's the what's the bow here that we should be looking at this with? Uh, so again, the analysis is 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 perfect. It's both, right? I mean, both are going to happen. The Fed is going to interpret incorrectly uh, that you know, rising credit creation, even if it's subprime credit, and even if it's, uh, you know, a net negative in the sense that you buy a wasting asset on credit paying high interest rates. So that asset depreciates in value, right? You're not, you're not buying an appreciating asset like a house or, you know, a, a collectible. You're buying things that, that get used up, you know, like food, you consume it or like a movie, uh, you know, it cost me 20 bucks, which was worth every penny to go to Top Gun Maverick and IMAX. Don't see it so any good. other way. I heard so, good. so good. So, yeah. so I good. Yeah. I mean, so good. But yeah. but those are wasting assets and, and then you got to pay for it over a long period of time. And you're going to pay rising interest rates. So yeah, the Fed will will make that mistake. But then on the flip side, to your point, the, the defaults will happen, mm-hmm. right? I mean- when people borrow too much on credit cards. The nice thing about a credit card, you can default without that much pain. And in theory, you gotta do the personal bankruptcy and all that stuff, but even that isn't like it used to be. It used to be seven years in debtor's prison and you just couldn't get any credit. Now you can get credit within like 18, 24 months. So, but that that definitely will happen. And then there'll be the contagion effect. But I actually, I don't think we're gonna get there I don't think we're going to get to the extreme because I think the Fed's going to pivot right before the election. Uh, they're going to try to save the Dems, which I don't think they'll be able to, but I think they'll try. And I think we're going to have a reversal in policy and we will bail out the worst of the worst again. And we'll just extend and pretend. Um, we just, 
it's funny. We're cleaning. My my son is eleven, and so he's grad. He just yesterday graduated, which I didn't know you could do from fifth grade. So he's off to middle school next year, mm-hmm. and so. To celebrate that, he gets to move into his older brother's big room. So he's mm-hmm. been in the little room. Congratulations, well. Now he gets the, the big room. Mm-hmm. And so we were, you know, going through his stuff and what do you want to keep? Whatever. And he had this whole bunch of participation trophies. And you know, I've told the story that the first one he got when he was four, I brought home and his team went 0 and 10. And I took it and I put it in the trash. You don't get a, a medal for 0 and 10. But he had a bunch of others. And he looked at him and like, no, throw them away. And like that, that's where we are. We're still in that participation trophy world. And we don't punish the bad actors. We don't, uh, we celebrate the nonsense. Like how many people spent time watching this stupid trial? Oh my God, it makes yeah. my head hurt. So I think uh, the last note I want to close, just what you were saying there reminded me of is, um, with the buy now, pay later thing, I think one of the reasons to why it's not, why it's just not great is because debt, debt isn't bad as long as it's productive, right? Like yeah. if you take on debt for, yeah. honestly, for a house uh, or for yeah. a company or for whatever, I mean, that's, if you can produce more cash flows to service that debt, then that's a good thing, right? You go all the way back to Alexander Hamilton. He believed in, you know, yeah. some amount of debt. There's just a line somewhere. And honestly, a lot of the assets that people are, the stuff, I'm not going to call it assets. It's stuff that people are buying you're not going to get a return on you know i can't think of any consumer Whatever, buying like appreciated your assets you're not going to get cash flows with, from the airpods that you're financing no no again buying appreciating assets with low cost debt is what rich people do mm-hmm. think about it that's what rich people do they own multiple homes they own appreciating assets like art and commodities and they finance it with really cheap debt. That is productive. That is productive. Buying wasting assets with high rate debt, consumer debt, is a recipe for the poor house. All right, I wanna move on to this last story here because I wanna get your take, um, uh, something more in in crypto land, but also uh, just about down rounds in general. So Mm -hmm. story kind of broke this week, right? that uh, BlockFi is raising a down round at a billion dollar valuation. Uh, that's down from the last valuation that they had, which was $3 billion in 3. March 8, of 2021. Yep. 3.8. 3.8. Um, yeah. Now, I mean, we could either talk specific. I mean, you and I have talked about BlockFi in the show. I, I'm going to say my personal opinion here. I, I'm a big fan of BlockFi. So we could talk about them. We could talk about. No, we I think talk about it. Look, we're the second largest owner. Yeah. And um, I, I, I love this company. I, 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 I think that this is a steal at this valuation at two times revenues um, compared to a lot of public companies at still 15, 20 times revenues. You mm-hmm. know, paying two times revenues is is a really good deal. Um, but look, the average down round, I believe, is coming 80%. Mm-hmm. Eight zero. And there was a tweet this morning. I don't know if I retweeted or not, but it was a analysis of you know GoPuff and and a bunch of other big companies that you know all the big glitterati venture funds did six months ago. They're all going to be down 50, 60, 80 percent, and it's real. And and look, Keith Raboy tweeted about this six eight months ago, and, and you know whether you love him or hate him, this was cool in that he said. Yes, we've all lost our minds as an industry 
we're all overpaying, but you go first. You cut the de- you cut your valuation first and, and get excluded from the deal. And the rest of us will do the deal. And then I'll follow you. Uh, nobody wants to be first. And, and look, really, I said, am, am, I, am I happy that, that uh, the valuation is down 75% from the last round or 74% from the last round? No. Am I excited for the future of this business that I think is going to be one of the dominant players in the space? Absolutely. Am I going to yeah. participate? Absolutely. Um, but yeah, it's more are coming. And uh, and the good news, and, and nobody likes to hear this either, and I'm going to say this on stage tomorrow, um, a whole bunch aren't going to survive. And that's not a bad thing. What we need is to get the bad ideas away and not allow them to drain human capital and physical capital in and we need the displacement to happen and for mm. people to be displaced, right? Gemini's laying off 10% and, and other companies are laying off 10%. And that's a good thing. And I go, wait, no, people losing jobs is not good. And I don't, I don't mean it in a mean like way. And I'm, you know, touch wood, I, I still have a job. Um, it's, it's not about that. It's that downsizing is necessary and those displaced people, in many cases, go on to do amazing things. Some of the best investments I have ever made in my career happened in the depths of bear markets, backing people who were displaced and had to do something unique, innovative, creative. Uh, and so this is the time to build. And it's necessary. Winter is necessary. And it creates spring and summer. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you there. I've got a specific question for you on because you hear these these awful things about down rounds, right? Like avoid at all costs. It's really bad. Yeah. Why is it so bad? And if you could talk specifically for the employees as well, just because folks are equity is very confusing things, especially in startup land and is often not very transparent. Uh, and, you know, as as an employee, sometimes depending on how your equity is structured, you're very uh, junior on the on the cap table, right? So your equity is oh, kind of the first absolutely. to get wiped out. Absolutely. Uh, look, mm-hmm. Down rounds are are bad for for lots of different reasons. I mean, one, just the the psychological effect, the psychological you thought, impact. You thought yeah. you had this this great wealth, and, and now you don't. Now, you know, uh, Sam Walton used to say this all the time. It was paper yesterday, it's paper today, and it'll be paper tomorrow. So people who <laughs> spend it like that's it's real, point. yeah, that's a mistake. It's paper, and until you until you convert it to real money or real value. It's not real. And you know, one of the things about venture, uh, I like to say this even to my partners, that um, venture is not about what you got. It's about what you got out. So all of us felt really smart six months ago. Oh, look at how these high valuations. But they weren't. I didn't get, I didn't get the cash back. And, and we did take some chips off the table. And we, we actually sent back all of the money from our first fund to our investors within three years. That almost never happens. And I feel really good about that. And so now we we have all profits to, to, to harvest in the future. But we didn't sell everything. And, you know, our valuation is going to go down. And that's okay. But for, for employees, it's bad. One, psychologically. Two, the way stock compensation works is you got all these options that are struck at probably higher prices, and now suddenly they're out of the money and they don't have as much value and you thought you were getting paid a lot and now I'm not being paid for my my value. 
So that's a problem. Um, and so then it also forces some people then to do some secondary transactions to fund lifestyle, buy a house or, or whatever. And so that then pushes the price down because people are like, oh, you need liquidity? I'll give you liquidity, but at a price. Uh, yeah. And so, and then the last piece of it is preferred stock, venture capital firms come in in layers of hers, like the old jello molds, right? It was clear on the bottom and then got you know cloudier with the different things and it made the layers uh, or like a layer cake. And the, the last money in has what's called a liquidity preference, meaning in the event of a really bad outcome, like a liquidation, you know, if something really bad happens, those people get paid. And the people at the bottom, the common shareholders, management and employees, get bupkis. I mean, think about this. $500 million company, suddenly a down round to $100 million, Okay. The VCs have $100 million in with a liquidity preference. It gets sold for $100 million. You know, some you know person comes in and, and picks it up on the cheap. The VCs get $100 million and everybody else gets nothing. So, whoa, yeah. whoa, 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 whoa. And so, yes, you want to avoid down rounds. But the reality is valuation... Market valuation matters. And when the largest public comp Coinbase went from, you know, 10, 11 times revenues right. to three, guess what? Every other valuation is going to go down. Yep. I, I think that's very well said. Uh, and I think that, you know, for those of you who haven't worked in a startup, the psychological impact uh, is, is, is I, can, I can very clearly understand why that would be so um, disheartening. And, you know, you can say that there's a great quote from Sam Walton, paper, paper tomorrow, paper today, whatever. Paper yesterday, that, paper day, paper, paper yesterday, tomorrow. Yeah, it's just right. paper. But, it's just but paper. people, people just won't live like that. Uh, people just, people continuously, you know, they'll, that's what, that's what makes it very difficult to compensate with, with equity actually in general. Um, I think it's just a challenge of, of human psychology. It's a super big challenge. And, and look, it's even more challenging because we went 13 years without cycles. So we didn't have to deal with this. It was just number go up. Not crypto number, but just economic growth, valuations, everything went up because yeah. they held interest rates down. And back to the Fed, it's the root of all evil. And, you know, rest in peace, Rudy Havenstein. He was kicked off Twitter and, you know, God rest his soul. I mean, ridiculous. But... The guy, you know, ETF and the Fed, look, the Fed's been causing problems for 107 years, 109 years, sorry, 109 years, and it ain't going to stop. And we are now in a place where the cycles are returning and they might return with a vengeance and, you know, kind of like die hard with a vengeance, right? Um and usually sequels are bad. That one was not bad, but not as good as Maverick Top Gun. Awesome sequel. Amazing. I um, can't wait to see that. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, Michael, you, 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 I, I'm ready to go again. I, actually, I was ready to watch it the second time on the day of, of the show. But it's it's so good. So well written. So well acted. Tom Cruise is, I mean, I don't, I don't care for his life and weird stuff. But the guy as an actor, whew, amazing. I'm so, amazing. Okay, I... Yeah, maybe it's a hot take. Tom Cruise is like one of the last real movie stars. That guy oh. is a freaking movie star. Movie no, star. First movie of all, star. Star. 
First of all, he's aging in reverse. Whatever weird voodoo he's got going on with Scientology. Yep. yep. I don't know, man. You can knock it. Something's working for that guy. It's I mean, working, baby. It is working. Well, most of it is what you put in your mouth or not put in your mouth and and working out. Right? Yeah. And 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 that that's the big part. But there may be something else. But it's working. And I, I don't know. The joy of that movie. I mean, there were there were periods in the movie of just pure joy. Like he wasn't acting. He was just living. And and it was awesome. And the scene with him and Val Kilmer almost bring I mean, bring a tear to my eye right now. It was just so good. And so it's amazing when an actor is no longer acting. Like that he is that that person. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't know. It's just I, I but I agree with you. I mean, Humphrey the, Bogart uh, there aren't many that you would say, you know. He carries a franchise, man. He's so dedicated oh. to the craft. Yeah, that's what yeah. I mean. He's like blockbuster. He headlines it. He's in the fighter craft flying, like on the Mission Impossibles. He's hanging out of the plane. Uh, I mean, how could you not respect that guy? Okay, and here's the other thing. You know, everyone thought he was a weirdo because he like hopped up on the on the on the uh, the couch or whatever during that Oprah interview. Yeah. Think about if he did that today. He wouldn't even, that wouldn't even be the top story of today. You know, he just, no. sorry, he just went a little nuts uh, tw- 15 years too early. You were ahead of your time, Tom Cruise. That's because right. An actor as usual, ahead of your time. Would yeah. be like, that doesn't even matter. Doesn't even make the, you know, it'd be like, wouldn't even be the top story of a 24 hour news cycle today. So um, yeah. I, I definitely want to see Maverick. I just haven't had the chance to do it yet. But all I'll right, do it. Next. All right. All right. That's all the time we've got today, folks. We got to wrap. Mark, as always, best hour of my week. I will see you same time next week, my friend. All right. Cheers. Have a good one. Thanks, y'all. You too.